Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA plus Unity Ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash I am divine 2022. We are spiritual beings having a human experience. Welcome to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome to World Spirituality, exploring the unity within all cultures and faith traditions with your host, Rev. Paul John Roach. So, hello and welcome to today's show on World Spirituality on the Unity Online Radio Network. Uh, We were offline last week due to the great snowstorm that uh, meant that there was power outages both here in Texas and where the studios are in Missouri. But all is restored now, thank God. And uh, so we're, we're thrilled to be back up live today. And we welcome a remarkable guest. He's an internationally lauded author, teacher, rabbi, psychotherapist, and editor. Michael Lerner, um, Dr. Lerner, I should say, is um, the editor of the Spiritually Progressive Tikkun magazine. Many of us may have heard of that or read it. Uh, He's the chair of the Network of Spiritual Progressives a rabbi of the Beit Tikkun Synagogue Without Walls, uh, author of the best-selling book, The Left Hand of God, Taking Back Our Country from the Religious Right. And now his new book is entitled uh, Revolutionary Love, um, which is incredibly important today. It's a political manifesto to heal and transform our world. So it's a great pleasure to welcome Michael Lerner to today's show. Welcome. Glad you're with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. Let me first state that uh, we are a nonprofit uh, spiritual and educational organization. Um, and so we cannot get into uh, pol- politics in, the, in a partisan sense on our show here Um but we can look at politic, uh, pol- politics in a larger sense, right, in the, in the process, uh, the polity of, of things, the, the way um, society functions, and um, uh, in, both in a civil and, and social sense. And, and, the, and that's, the book is really about those aspirations. So ha- having said that caveat, we can proceed. So let's jump in. Um, it's a it's a remarkably important book, I think, uh, and many people are talking about the themes that are inherent within it. Not not the least um, people like Greta Thunberg um, in in Sweden. Um, the the need for a, a radical reshift or re um, setting of, of our values, basically, right? And and COVID nineteen, although it's brought much death and and um, dislocation and stress has also brought a sense of uh, re- resetting something, right, of, of uh, looking again, 
uh, of saying, wait a minute, maybe we don't have to continue the way we have been going. So let's talk about, let's kick off with that idea. Yes, well, um, certainly um, the isolationist view of who we are, each one out for ourselves without regard to the consequences for others, has been somewhat punctured by uh, this COVID-19, which uh, has made it clear that we, and here I mean we, the entire human race, are in it together. And that what happens in uh, in a uh, little town in China um, uh, can affect uh, people all over the world. Um, so um, there is no longer any plausibility in saying, i got to look out for myself, okay? Because there's no way to look out for yourself without looking out for everyone else. We are all deeply connected and physically connected in the way that COVID-19 has shown. Right, and that's become writ large. Um, then there's, there's been a, a, an affirmative impulse, isn't there, of people caring for each other. And, and we see this with the, with the people on the front lines, you know, the, the, definitely the, uh, the health professionals. The, I just got my, my, uh, my first COVID shot a week or so ago. And, you know, I was really uh, touched by the, um, the effort that was being put into this and the logistics of it, because they're, they're, um, they're giving people, uh, you know, millions a day now. And, and that takes a logistical effort. But it was done with, with a certain grace and, and a kindness. And that, that made me feel good, actually. Beautiful. Well, it's, um, it really should, because uh, the fact of the matter is, is that although the capitalist marketplace tries to convince us that everybody is out for themselves and that selfishness is the only rational way to be in the world, nevertheless, um, give people the opportunity and the, the means to care for each other, and they will jump at it. People want very much to live in a very different kind of world in which the bottom line is no longer money and power, but caring and kindness. Um, but they often don't get the opportunity because they are overwhelmed by the daily indoctrination that comes in the world of work in which the bottom line is maximizing the money or power of the people who own and control those institutions or coming home and then finding that same message being um, uh, delivered to them in a slightly more um, sophisticated or uh, careful way in the media, particularly in all of the, um, uh, in most of the um, uh, the sitcoms in which the, the the central theme is who's going to have more power over whom, whether that power is political or whether that power is um, uh, in terms of sex or uh, human relationships. Who's going to be on top and who's not going to be on top? The message is kind of constantly being driven into our minds that everybody's just out for themselves. And the, I'd say the media repeats that and uh, in a more sophisticated way conveys that in the shows that it presents. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's even an abusive relationship in the sense that we, we as the, uh, the consumers have sort of internalized guilt, right? Uh, you, you call it uh, toxic uh, 
self-blaming, you know, that sense of powerlessness. If I, if I didn't earn enough or I, di I didn't uh, struggle hard enough, then I blame myself, right? And, and really, there's no need to blame yourself. You, you, you are part of a, a domination system, right, that, that is manipulating you in a sense. And, um, it, but it's hard to break free from that conditioning. It's, it's very hard, and, um, in part because um, well-intentioned parents start out by age three, four, or five of their kids to be telling them, you've really got to work hard at school because, um, you know, it's a society in which you can become the president of the United States if you work hard enough. Um, and, uh, but if you don't work hard enough, uh, you may have a lousy job like the job I have. And I don't want you to be in the same lousy job that I have. I want you to have a better deal. So, um, you've got to struggle, uh, really hard now to make it. And what happens of course, for most people is that, um, that what is left out of the picture is that we're living in a class dominated society in which a small group of people own a vastly disproportionate amount of wealth. Um, and um, that is the top 10% owning close to 80% of the wealth of the society and the bottom 50% of the population owning less than 2% uh, of the wealth of the population. So it's a, it's a society in which um, it's a miracle when somebody does make it out of their birth, the, the part of the class structure that they've been born into, and gets very far ahead. The New York Times did a study of um, uh, mobi mobility from class to class some 10 years ago, and they discovered that over the past 50 years, the mobility was like 1% to 2% total of the population being able to make it out of uh, the uh, class uh, positions that they had been in. And the few make it to a point of really being successful financially or in other ways. Um, was like a tiny, tiny, tiny part of them. Now, those people, are, those who have, are then rolled out in the television and in the public uh, discourse and pointed to. You see here, this black woman, she's made it over here. And here's this uh, 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 Chicano or uh, Me Mexican person who has made it over here. And they, they're brought out to... Um, to celebrate that and to give the impression that anybody could do that. But the truth of the matter is there's a class structure. There's a, a wildly unequal distribution of wealth and power, and the amount of um, ability to ascend is very, very, very limited. So, um, but people looking at uh, having absorbed the message that we live in a meritocracy, a meritocracy that is ruled by merit. So this is the justification that the um, the owners of the uh, corporate uh, corporations and the uh, owners of the disproportionate wealth try to convey to us all the time. The reason why I have so much more than you is because I'm smarter than you or I worked harder than you. Well, of course, it's a crazy and um, false message that um, that uh, I learned when I was as a psychologist um, had a study of the psychodynamics of middle-income working people, both at work and in family life. And what I learned was that 
um, people often worked uh, uh, one, uh, maybe two jobs to make a living and working really, really hard. They weren't working less than the, the people with money. They were working a lot more than the people with money. Okay. And, and secondly, that they were just as smart. As anybody, we we did we 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 surveyed the um, the various testings that had been done of IQ and so forth. We found that the that it was basically equally distributed amongst all the different levels of income. It wasn't that the people at the top were smarter. It was that they had huge advantages uh, either through birth or um, or through. Um, making themselves extremely useful to the most rich and powerful people in the society. So, not, and, and there are a few such jobs, but there aren't a lot of jobs um, because the uh, ruling uh, uh, people who are in the upper, uh, let's say, 80th percentile of income are doing their best to get into the, the top, the next top 10% of income. And uh, so the competition is uh, rough up there. But for the rest of us, there's almost no chance. So um, it's not a meritocracy. And but the flip side of believing that you live in a meritocracy is that everybody feeling terrible about terrible about themselves. I I I didn't make it. I'm not successful. And why am I not successful? It must be something wrong with me. Now this message is a hurtful and destructive message. And uh, one of the most uh, important things we can do as spiritual people is to tell to tell people. You know, it's not true. It's not your fault that your life isn't working. Now, I'm a psychologist, so I'm, I'm not going to say that we don't contribute in some ways. Everybody contributes in some ways to things that aren't perfect in their life. And that goes for the richest people as well as for the poorest of people. We all contribute somewhat, somewhat to what's going on in our lives. But we should not underestimate how much the larger social reality um, uh, impinges on us. So that even even in regards to the question of do we have the right partner, yeah, no many, there are so many people who feel like um, they ended up with a partner that doesn't really care for them, that's so selfish and materialistic, and they think, I must have really screwed up when I, you know, I screwed up my life by making this choice. It turns out, however, that when people get divorced and then get another partner, very often they find out that the same selfishness and materialism that they hope to escape by getting a divorce from the first person is there in the second person as well. Why? Not because people are bad, but because everybody has absorbed the common sense of capitalist society, which is look out for number one, maximize your own well-being without regard to the consequences for others. And that then leads people to bring home into their own personal life ways of being that are undermining loving and caring relationships. Right. And we have a trope in our society, too, that I've noticed that I don't think it exists. I grew up in Great Britain and uh, doesn't exist there so much. But in America, we have this trope of uh, you're either a winner or a loser. Right. And you see it written in in a lot of uh, in literature and, and pop music and I guess Willie Loman, you know, in uh, Death of a Salesman is sort of an archetype of that, you know, loser type person. 
and uh, the tragic figure. Um, but it's sad that we have to have this uh, the dualism, right, between, you know, you either succeeded or you failed, whereas there's so many different ways to succeed. And, and uh, just because you don't succeed in a certain way doesn't necessarily mean you failed. Yes. Well, this gets gets uh, onto a central message of the network of spiritual pro progressives, which I encourage people who are listening to go to your website and go to spiritualprogressives.org, spiritualprogressives.org, and uh, see um, about uh, what we call a new bottom line. Let me tell you about the new bottom line. The old bottom line says this, if we judge every institution, our corporations, our economy, our political system, our, our healthcare system, our um, educational system, our cultural systems, uh, as efficient, rational, and productive to the extent that they maximize money and power to those who control those institutions. And then those institutions, and if they're not doing so well in terms of maximizing money and power, then they are considered failures as institutions. Okay, now that's the old bottom line. And it leads everybody to be judging themselves in terms of, am I good enough by maximizing money and power or for somebody, usually for somebody that I have no, no control over, namely the owners of the corporations. Um, but we are calling for a new bottom line. And the new bottom line says the following. Judge every institution, judge our economy, our political system, our, our educational system, our judicial system, our cultural systems, um, our educational system, by how much they tend to create or nurture people's capacities to be loving and caring, kind and generous, ethically and environmentally sensitive and responsible, capable of um, supporting social and uh, economic justice, and capable of responding to other human beings, not through the framework of seeing them as valuable to the extent that they maximize my well-being or my interests, but rather looking at other, other human beings simply as embodiments of the sacred that must be uh, loved and cared for for who they are and not for what they will do for you not for what they will deliver to you. And similarly, looking at the earth and the universe as a whole, not from the standpoint of, gee, I wonder if there's something here I can turn into a commodity and sell and make a buck out of, but rather looking at the earth and the larger universe with awe, wonder, and radical amazement at the grandeur and mystery of creation. So if you go take, that's the new bottom line. And if we had that as the new bottom line, then many, 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 many people would come to recognize their own value. And conversely, many of those who, many of the institutions that now claim to be uh, efficient, rational, and productive would be seen as very unproductive, very irrational, because they don't tend to maximize people's capacity to be loving and caring, kindness and, uh, kindness and uh, all the other things that I've just said in that one little, uh, uh, really uh, one minute uh, uh, um, saying about what the new bottom line is. And some people would counter and say, um, 
utopianism, idealism. Uh, there's been various movements through history that have talked like this. The mystics talk like this. The you know some kind of Blakeian uh, view of, of life beyond the the horrors of dualism. The, you know during the industrial revolution he was speaking out against those things. Uh, you've had other people uh, creating uh, econ you know their own economies or their own uh, communes, whatever, and they're all doomed to failure. I, I love the ideas, but they're just not practical. So how, how would you how would you uh, respond to people who, who respond to you like that? Well, first of all, I want to uh, respond with compassion. I know that people have been so deeply indoctrinated by this by the capitalist ethos that it's very hard to to even think oneself out of it. Imagine even imagining a different world in the podcast that uh, that I do every once every two weeks called Imagine With Us, Imagine With Us. We talk about how to get to the point where we could imagine that kind of a world. Um, uh, but it's very, very hard for people, so I don't want to put anybody down whose first response is, oh, this is all um, uh, utopian baloney that will never happen. Okay. Now, however... My experience is in the past. Now I'm I'm uh, just celebrated my 78th birthday, so I've been on the planet a while, and my experience is that almost every significant change that I've seen and that we as a country have seen in the past uh, 60 years has happened only after the. The, those who proposed the changes were at first told they were utopian and fantasies and would never happen. And then, eventually, um, people worked for them, they struggled to get them, they got put down for them for being uh, unrealistic, etc. And finally, they made some real change, changes. So that was true of the civil rights movement. That was true of the women's movement. You know, when people said, women said, we want to, we want to um, change the power dynamics between men and women. The, their fellow women were saying, that's ridiculous. It's utopian. You know, what we should ask for is a tiny little change, you know, that maybe maybe uh, men shouldn't get a, be allowed to um, beat up their wives because um, there was a time when that was perfectly legal. That was something that was, uh, was a part of uh, what the rights of men were. Okay. So um, uh, or we saw this with the gay and lesbian movement when they were um, when they first started to talk about the right to marriage or wanting to, wanting gays and uh, gay and lesbian marriages. Um, uh, their fellow activists in those movements said, "No, that's too utopian. It's impossible." But um, and then it happened. Um, similarly, the end of apartheid. There was an apartheid movement that was going on for several decades, trying to challenge apartheid. And everybody with common sense was saying, "It'll never happen. It'll never happen." You know, you're going for something that's too too extreme. Maybe there should be a little bit better conditions for African Africans who are living under apartheid. But to abolish the apartheid system, utopian, it'll never happen. So here's what I conclude from all this: you never. Yeah, and I think you make make some good points. You know, because um, 
the, the diaspora of the Tibetans, I think, is a good example also. Um, you know, although they've been very unjustly treated by by China, you know, and then they've had, many of them have had to leave their native land. Uh, their response has been remarkable, and it's also allowed their uh, teachings to be disseminated more fully throughout the world. And of course, that's all led, I guess, by the Dalai Lama, and he's a, a great example of this compassion and this revolutionary love that we're talking about, right? And, and yes, so, you know, was, even, even though he's just one person be, and the, you know, the Tibetan people are by not the huge. Dalai Lama to be on, a, on actually two different panels with him discussing these issues. And I've, uh, I think that the Dalai Lama um, has played a key role. But you see, he was a visionary who refused to be realistic. Okay. <laughs> to be, so I say about being realistic. Okay. I, I mean, I, uh, our slogan in, um, in the uh, Tikkun magazine, T-I-K-K-U-N, T-I-K-K-U-N dot org. But that's the, the magazine that, um, that I edit and that uh, puts forward the kinds of ideas that uh, fits with a new bottom line, Tikkun dot org. Um, and uh, what I say is, don't be realistic. Stop it. Don't be realistic. It's because why? Because you never know what is possible until you spend your life energies struggling for what is desirable. And it turns out that when enough people start to struggle for what's desirable, we can win. And we have won key, important transformations in the society. Now, after we win those, uh, those struggles, the sociologists come along who the same people who have said, oh, it's impossible, it's not going to happen, etc. And they turn around and say, oh, well, that was inevitable. That was in inevitable. Well, that's what will happen also with the new bottom line and with building a world of uh, the kind of world that I describe and, um, and strategize how to get there in my book, Revolutionary Love. The fact is that if enough people decide that they are going to stop being... Uh, um, uh, a, a realistic and instead embrace their own highest desire for the world that they want, we will get it. But we will only get it if people can overcome that self, uh, number one, the self-blaming that tells them that they don't deserve it, and number two, overcomes the belief that it's impossible to make fundamental transformations. Folks, when with Michael, Rabbi Michael Lerner, we need to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk some more about his new book, Revolutionary Love, a manifesto to heal and transform the world. Join us after these messages from Unity. We'll be back in a, in a minute or so. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. We now return to World Spirituality with Reverend Paul John Roach. 
So welcome back to today's show. I'm with Rabbi Michael Lerner. We're talking about his new book, Revolutionary Love, a political manifesto to heal and transform the world. It's a very topical, hard-hitting manifesto and uh, shows us some of the, uh, the difficulties, but also some of the solutions. And people can change. Um, I, uh, Rabbi, you mentioned uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, twice in your book, maybe more. The, uh, I've missed the other references, but at least twice, where in 2004, I think it was, he, he referred to the... Um, to, to the, the soft left as 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 girly man, uh, which was of course a reference to you know his previous career uh, in the movies and uh, as a bodybuilder whatnot, uh, a girly man. And uh, but now we think he's changed completely from that stance. And uh, I saw him actually uh, talking with Greta Thunberg the other day, and uh, he's spoken quite uh, passionately about the the need for. Uh, taking climate change seriously. So, you know, if somebody like him can can change, we, we all can change, right? There's, uh, there's hope Absolutely. here, is my point. Yes, yes. And um, some uh, um, people are always have the possibility of self-transformation, but they also have the resistance of everyone around them and the uh, and the basic messages that are being thrown at them in the media and by the political leadership. And that those messages say you can't really build a society based on love, care, and kindness and generosity because people are basically selfish and looking out for number one. And what my book is about, Revolutionary Love, is about how how false that is and how we can transcend or overcome that ne negative view of what human beings are. Um, and it was based on my um, own work as a psychologist because um, I was honored to be given um, the, uh, the role of being the primary investigator of a National Institute for Mental Health study of the psychodynamics of middle-income working people at work and at family life. And one of the things I learned was that most people um, will tell you that their jobs are very unfulfilling that they are frustrated because they can't see the connection between what they're doing all day and any higher values. Um, and they feel very frustrated about that. But then when we ask them, why, why don't you work to change that? They said it can't be changed because everybody on the planet is selfish. And so we then asked them, well, wait, um, uh, and this is a study that eventually included thousands and thousands of middle-income working people. Um, so we'd ask them, well, um, you're saying everybody, but what about your friends? Are they all selfish? or um, why, don't you, why don't you see if that's true? And they came back and said, actually, no. It's not really true about our friends. It's just true about everyone else. <laughs> okay. In other words, um, uh, what's, what's happening is that the uh, the the uh, world of work gives us the impression that the only way to be is to look out for number one. And then when we come home and we turn on the television, the same thing is presented to us. And uh, Schwarzenegger was an example of that. He was he was always saying uh, things that made you think that the only way to be in this world is to be tough and have power over other people. 
I'm so delighted to hear that he has transformed in the last few years and become somebody with greater, higher degrees of empathy and uh, caring for others. Um, yes. What, so what we, but what we discovered is that um, that everybody is holding the same view because it's so massively reinforced both in the world of work, which is structured to reward people to the degree that they just look out for themselves. And then in, uh, in their, uh, when they turn on the media, the same message is given to them more subtly, but not too subtly, that everybody's out for themselves and that it's all about who has, gets more power over who, whether it's getting power in the sexual realm or in the relationship realm, uh, whatever realm, whoever has more power is the one who wins. So, um, so it's hard to overcome this, but most people, when you get them by themselves, will say, oh yeah, I hate, I hate living in this kind of world, but I don't believe it's possible to change it because everybody else loves it. But the truth is, everybody doesn't love it, but they don't, never hear people talking uh, about an alternative. And here is my criticism of the liberal and progressive world. The liberal and progressive world is filled with people who actually want a world of kindness and generosity, and they try to put forward programs that embody that. But they never use those words, never use words like love, caring, and kindness, and generosity as what they're about. Instead, they focus on delivering specific examples of that kindness and generosity in uh, primarily economic programs. Now, I'm all for their economic programs. I am myself a liberal and a progressive, okay? But I've, I'm a critic of our um, of the liberal and progressive movements for not uh, articulating what they re truly want, which isn't simply um, a um, uh, let's say forgiving the the debts of people who who have kids who have taken uh, loans in order to get through college or or um, uh, giving other very important a um, uh, fifteen dollar um, minimum wage or whatever. I'm, I mean, I'm all for those programs, but they are way too limited because they're put forward in a way that doesn't articulate the underlying value. And that underlying value is that we want the new bottom line of love, caring, kindness, and generosity, ethical and environmental sensitivity, awe and wonder at the grandeur of the universe, and seeing other human beings as embodiments of the sacred. You start talking that language, and you'll suddenly find that people in Texas who, who thought that the liberals and progressives were only about economic things, are actually addressing things that they thought they could only hear in church. Now, the, the, the terrible reality is that a, a large number of churches, when you go to them, the first thing they do is say, you know, you're probably in pain. Most people are in pain, uh, and we want to help you with that which is what the liberal and progressive world doesn't even begin to talk about. And then it says, you're, you're not to blame. Don't blame yourself. And that gives people so much sense of being looked after and cared for that they feel immediate allegiance to right-wing churches. Then the churches go on to say, oh, but you know who is to blame? And, and the right-wing churches will then point to gays and lesbians, feminists, uh, 
um, liberal and progressives, um, the uh, people who are immigrants or or uh, asylum seekers, or um, uh, Jews, or uh, Muslims, or and the the list list goes on, and this is a universal list because what happens is if you look at the um, every country. Um, the demeaned others are the ones who are blamed for everything. So in Europe, in the first half of the 20th century, the Jews were blamed for everything. Um, the Jews, the Jews were whenever whatever was going wrong. Oh, it's the fault of the Jews, and that eventually led to uh, to killing off um, one out of every three Jews alive in 1940 were murdered by uh, by the Nazis and the uh, and the kinds of people who more recently have. Um, bunched around uh, Trump and his his minions. Um, so, um, but in other countries, in in India, it's the it's the the Muslims who are blamed, and in China, it's the 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 Hindus and the Muslims who are blamed. And wherever you go, the structure of that um, that demeaning of others works to uh, um, keep people from looking at what really is causing their pain. And what's really causing their pain is living in a society in which the bottom line is maximizing self-interest. And we need to build a, 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 a kind of social movement. All of us who are spiritual progressives are trying to build a different kind of social movement, one in which everybody is embraced, including people we don't agree with. Okay? Well, I think it's hard to... Move beyond tribalism, isn't it? Um, even in the, more, the most sophisticated societies, and we see this devolution into tribalism in, in modern day America. Unfortunately, you know the the Demoness mentality. Um, it, and part of that, perhaps, is the fact that America is in decline. Right? It doesn't see itself as being top dog anymore. You know, it it. it uh, it feels like it's being threatened by other, by other uh, societies, uh, countries that are, uh, you, you know, wielding great power now. And um, so usually when that happens, there's a retrenchment, right? There's the sense of going back to when it used to be. Even, though the, mm-hmm. even if there was no used to be, there's this, uh, this idea of the golden age, you know, and we can make it great again or whatever. Um, so it's hard to get beyond that. But maybe the retrenching is a sign that something is breaking down. So let me ask the next question, and that is, um, does it take, do you think, a tipping point before we begin to pay attention? You know, we're talking about, in Texas, looking at an inquiry now about what happened with the uh, with the electrical grid. Um, before the storm, nothing happened, but now we, we're going to have an inquiry. Um, do we need, uh, you know, some tipping point, like global warming, that's going to get our attention, because otherwise we seem to be blithely whistling past the proverbial graveyard. Yes, well, um, that's a tragedy, and that's why in my book, Revolutionary Love, um, I lay out um, a strategy for what we can do together to change uh, this uh, society. Because if we wait for further, I mean, look, you've just gone through this incredible um, snowstorm there, and then you're saying, and then the temperature switches to 80. 
Okay. I mean, this, this is something is that we are getting this, uh, the the uh, message uh, from the God of the universe. So if you believe in God or if you don't believe in God, then the universe itself is speaking to us in some way to give us the message that, hey, folks, what you are doing is not working. And the only way that we can communicate is through our the plagues we're sending to you. Okay, one plague after another. Okay, and the the we we're in the midst of uh, a plague in the um, a global plague that has killed millions in the United States. Um, we just uh, commemorated the death of four hundred thousand people. That's way more than than the the um, uh, the, the Vietnam War and the Afghan War and you know the, I mean we 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 and this in one year. In one year. Um, Actually, it's 500,000, isn't it? The universe is sending us a message. The earth is sending us a message. And if we, if we wait longer to hear it, um, we, it, it will be too late. It's getting worse and worse and worse, you know. Um, and it's, in a way, it follows what the, the biblical path um, in which um, uh, – First, we appealed to uh, to Pharaoh and said, "Let our people go," and the Pharaoh didn't listen. And then, then Moses said, "Okay, well, then there are going to be plagues." And after each plague, Mo the Pharaoh would say, "Well, yeah, I think I should change my ways." But as soon as the plague went away, we forgot about it. And it took the devastation of the last plague of the the, uh, the the death of the children before the the Pharaoh was willing to move. I'm praying that we don't wait till the till uh, the plagues get so bad um, that the uh, that there is no reversibility possible. And I I I hope and pray that the generations that are coming up today will understand that there is no time to wait. That we have to right now put on the top of our agenda ending the destruction of the earth. And we are, but we are instead are participating in it, and why? Because the corporations that control the, the, the media, that own the media, control the media, and, can, and pay off the political leaders and give them the money that they need to uh, keep running, keep saying, oh no, we're doing fine, just keep doing what we're doing, and uh, everything will uh, turn out just fine. No, it's not gonna turn out just fine. And we need people who can stand up to that and say, this is a global crisis and we need global solutions to end the, end the carbon in the atmosphere, to stop, uh, and of course this is going to upset the, the, the rich people in Texas who are making uh, millions and sometimes billions off of the, the extraction of carbon from the earth and uh, to use, to provide energy in all kinds of ways. That could be better produced. Uh, could could be better provided if we were to make an emergency uh, uh, emergency uh, focus on getting alternate the alternative sources of energy that do not destroy the environment. So um, yes, there is uh, there is a, um, a tremendous need for a mass mobilization of people. And uh, how to do that, it, it starts with um, changing the liberal and progressive movement from a, 
a narrow materialistic view of human needs in which we're going to provide them with their material needs to a broader view that recognizes that people have a need for higher meaning and purpose in their lives and that we need to uh, articulate that higher meaning and purpose in part as saving the planet and saving the well-being of all human beings on the planet. That's what the new bottom line is about. It's about the building the caring society instead of looking at uh, other countries in terms of, well, they're doing better. They might do better than us economically. We need to figure out how to build an alliance with those countries, okay, with, including with China and Russia and other countries that have a lot of bad policies. We still need to build an alliance and not and look for a way to work together to solve the problems facing the human race rather than just try and do it on our own and beat the others. Because as long as we're into the consciousness of how do we beat the others, we're avoiding how do we cooperate with the rest of the human race to save this planet and to save the human race. Well, let's, let's ask some questions around that. Uh in the last 10 minutes here of the show, um, what practical things could you suggest that our listeners do to begin this process, right? They can read your book, that's great. So I know I know they want to read your book. But apart from that, uh, what, what can they do this week that uh, can begin to make that shift? What, what, what practical, well, practical I, things? Well, I say the first thing is, um, articulate the new bottom line. That is, that the new bottom line is that we judge everything to be efficient, rational, and productive, not to the extent that it maximizes money and power, but to the extent that it maximizes love, caring, kindness, and generosity, ethical and environmental sensitivity, seeing other human beings as embodiments of the sacred, and uh, looking at the earth from the standpoint of awe and wonder and radical amazement, rather than looking at it from the standpoint of what we can get out of it to sell and make a buck off of. So, so take that new bottom line and start putting it out to your friends to say this is the bottom line that should uh, uh, shape our social life together and argue with them when they say it's impossible or un uh, impractical and, and to help them understand that every major change that's happened has happened because people did what was thought to be impossible, even from the, even from the standpoint of the, uh, finding the, uh, this continent, from Europeans finding, finding and discovering this continent, um, it was always thought to be improbable until it happened, you know, until people decided to try it out. Um, so get people to repeat the new bottom line and talk to people about it and talk and encourage your friends to sit down and envision with you what it would look like if the world were based on this new bottom line. So we call this the caring society. Now, the second step is you may need some training in this, and that's why we have a training in the, the, the network of spiritual progressives has what we call a um, uh, prophetic empathy training. The empathy is um, caring about other people, trying to listen to them, find out where they're coming from, and hear them in a, in a non-judgmental way. Very important. Prophetic empathy is also adding into the, to the empathy a way of talking that brings uh, forth the need for a change in our societal, societal 
Um, and we have a, a, a six-week training that's offered um, by the Network of Spiritual Progressives. Um, and that's another step that somebody can take. Um, the next thing is to then we want to build little groups of people who meet with each other and talk about the the how this plays out in uh, the social world. And we have uh, in, in the book a whole variety of different projects to do um, to help people uh, envision a, a world based on love, kindness, and generosity, and to see that it's not so far from what people actually want. So that includes supporting a global Marshall Plan not just supported by the United States, but by all countries, a global Marshall Plan to end global poverty, homelessness, hunger, inadequate education, inadequate health care for everybody on the planet. Because until we can do that, people have a huge incentive to break, the, uh, break our laws and come into this country uh, to try to get a living for themselves when they're living in societies uh, often societies that have uh, become dictatorships because the United States supported dictators overthrowing democratically elected governments. Uh, so then the conditions get terrible there and people are desperate. So they, uh, they move El Norte to the north, hoping that they can find a way to hang out here and at least be able to uh, send some money back to their, their families so that their families don't starve to death. Hey, these people aren't evil people. They're not criminals. They are people who are desperate for a way to survive. Well, there are a zillion other such examples of what people can do. Uh, embrace the, the caring society. We need to build the caring society. Caring for each other and caring for the earth. Those are, that's what we mean by the caring society. And as I say in 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 the book, A Revolutionary Love, I lay out many, many steps along the way. But the first one is to help us overcome our own self-blaming and to build a build uh, discussion groups around the book. You can, you can get the book and then uh, get a group of people who, together to read it together with you and talk about it. And yeah, people will say, oh, it's, uh, it's, this is uh, utopian, et cetera. But it turns out that if you start to allow yourself to think about it that way, then um, it's, it ends up being less utopian because more people who read it, more people who think about it even are willing to just consider. Um, more people will say, yeah, I actually would like to, to live in that kind of a world. I'd rather live in a world based on caring and kindness and generosity than a world based on selfishness and materialism and looking out for number one. It's just that I don't think right. it's possible. And I think uh, the people who are listening to the show today would probably totally agree with you and uh, people in unity in general are working towards that end. And and this whole network is the voice of an awakening world. And we're talking about these same themes. And an important thing you mentioned in the book is that uh, self-work alone, you know, inner work alone is not enough. You know, we can be enlightened, perhaps, but then we have to put feet on it, right? We have to live it in our lives. And so social activism, justice, in whatever way we feel is right for us is important yeah. because we have to make it practical in, in our world. It's, it, you know, we can't just sit alone in our room, uh, blessing out. We have, to, we have to make it real, whatever we are. And I think that's a call for, 
for action too. And we're seeing more of more and more of that in in unity right now. That we have to we have to live our walk our talk. I think is the way the this is phrased, the old timey way of, of phrasing it. We have one minute left. What, what, one more thing would you like to say to our audience today? Well, I'm going to say what I said earlier. Don't be realistic. Don't let the people who have power um, in the media, in politics, etc., even good people, tell you, oh, we can't do that because it's unrealistic. Go for your vision and your highest vision of the good. And um, I think you'll find it in revolutionary love. I think some of the ideas of a new bottom line of building a caring society may con uh, are likely to connect with your vision of the highest good. But whatever is your vision of the highest good, make that your the focus of your life. Give, put your money behind your vision of the highest uh, good. Put your life energy behind it. And if you don't want to be alone, also contact the Network of Spiritual Progressives, spiritualprogressives.org, and become part of a movement that's trying to do this. And yes, let's work with unity and with, with all the other good people who want this kind of a world, but don't really go for it because they think that they're alone. You're not alone. There are zillions of people who want it. They just need to know that you also want it. Let me tell you about next week's show, and then we'll say goodbye to, to Rabbi Lerner. Um, next week, I'm joined by author and Unity Minister Alden Studebaker, and he's going to talk about his book, Wisdom for a Lifetime in the 21st Century. It's his book about how to get the Bible off the shelf and into your hands. And a wonderful book. I read the original edition, then there's a new version out, which we'll be looking at. So that should be a good show next week. Right now, though, I want to thank very much uh, Rabbi Lerner for all the work that you've done over your lifetime for the, these books that you've produced, and especially this latest one. And I hope it uh, is uh, very successful and, and that we really do dare to move beyond what uh, seems to be impossible. Nothing is impossible with uh, the human spirit, right? Yes. And if people want to reach me, Rabbi Lerner is L Lerner is L E R N E R, not L E A R N E R. Rabbi Lerner, R A B B I L E R N E R dot Tikkun T I K K U N dot Tikkun T I K K U N at gmail dot com. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. Talk to you next week. Bye bye now. God bless. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Are you ready to experience the rich interconnection of spirituality, orientation, and identity? If so, plan to attend Liberating Your Divine Identity, a retreat at Unity Village during Pride Month, June 9th to the 12th. This soul-filled retreat is facilitated by LGBTQIA Unity ministers with workshops and ceremonies to cultivate a deeper awareness of our spiritual nature. Register at unityvillage.org forward slash IMDivine2022. 